0: And this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi, listeners. This is Datacast, a well-held long-form conversation with data practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is bagro a machine learning engineer at Snorkel AI. Before Snorkel, she worked closely with Andrew Inc in various capacities. First, at AI Fund, helping build ML companies from scratch internally and investing in ML companies. Second, as an ML engineer at the startup learning AI. Third, as the head TA for his different class CS230. And fourth, as an assistant in his research lab at Stanford. Adi graduated with a Master in Computer Science from Stanford, where she uh, participated in the Threshold Venture and X Fellowships before Stanford. She got her bachelor in computer science and computer engineering from NYU with highest honors. During her time at NYU, she worked in David Sontag's lab on application of machine learning to critical medicine and at Microsoft Research as a research intern for John Lamford, where she contributed to Valpa Wabbit, which is an, uh, a popular open source project. So, Artie, glad to have you on the show. Thank
1: you so much for having
0: me. While doing a little bit of homework for our conversation. I believe that you were born in India and then you later went to the U.S. for college. Can you just share a little bit about your upbringing as well as, you know, your decision to study abroad?
1: Yeah, sure. So I was born and raised in India and I moved to the States for undergrad uh, when I was 17 to go to NYU. And it wasn't something that I'd planned on like growing up. I always was interested in like the sciences. So Indian parents, you know, you're like, you either become a doctor or an engineer. And so I was for a while heading down more of the engineering path and then, Right before I came to NYU, actually, I got into med school in India because you go directly to med school. So I almost went to medical school and that was the path. My parents had just made me apply to schools abroad as like a backup, (laughs) uh, just just as like more options. And I realized I didn't want to go to med school. And then it was sort of like a fairly quick decision. uh, And I'm very grateful for my parents for for being like, okay, yeah, like go ahead and and go study abroad just because didn't really want to be in medicine, didn't know what I wanted to do. So studying in the U.S., I feel like was more optionality. And so I came to NYU and decided to uh, study computer science because I was interested in math, still trying to figure it out. So that's a little bit about like, (laughs) just was from a small city called called Nasik, and then ended up in New York. So it was a bit of a transition, uh, but I'm very grateful in hindsight for my parents for, for making that happen.
0: Tell me a little bit about like your first experience just living in the West, you know, coming from small town, India, and obviously living in New York City, which is like a whole another universe. What were some of the cultural shock or even personal things you experienced that was pretty challenging at the time?
1: Yeah, so I'd never been to the US before I I just moved there. Uh, (laughs) The culture shock is definitely real in in terms of it's just a new place, and especially New York, big city, very hectic. But I do think it was like a very transformational experience sounds erratic. But uh, I think college is already a time when you kind of grow and find yourself as a person and, and, and things like that. So I think Uh, Already, I think Indian school system is much more sort of academic, textbook-based, things like that. So already just coming to NYU, I think a lot of the learnings were more practical, working in labs, things like that. So I thought that the academic experience was great. Also, uh, NYU makes you take a lot of liberal arts classes, which was never a thing that was valued in India. I mean, just just, like people focus more on the sciences. And so I think just learning to be a better writer and, and focusing more on just like liberal arts, cultural development, learning about like books and things like that. Uh, I mean, I did read in India too, but I think just a more holistic experience, I guess, um, I really appreciated, And then just living in New York, you know, NYU is very in the city. I think that was a shock too, which I I really appreciated, but it's just a shock where it's like, there's no campus, you're just in the city. I think it it makes you sort of just like grow up a lot faster uh, and it makes you feel like an adult a lot sooner maybe. So I think overall, just a very good experience.
0: Thanks for sharing that, some of the details and things that you went through. And kind of talk about your experience at NYU. You actually uh, got your degrees in both computer science and computer engineering, and you kind of alluded a little bit to that in your answers. Can you maybe go a bit in more details about your overall academic experience at NYU, for instance, and what were some of your favorite classes that you took?
1: Yeah, so NYU offers a BA in computer science, not a BS, which in the US doesn't matter, but in India, I think everybody was like, how is it a BA? Like a BA is is sort of like not a very uh, reputable degree in in, in India. Like there's a differentiation. And the only way that I could get a bachelor's in science, in computer science at NYU was to also do another additional degree in the School of Engineering, which is like computer engineering. And so then that way I could have two degrees. And it was a five-year program and I did not want to stay like an extra year just to get that additional degree. So in fact, like at NYU, I took a lot of classes every quarter just to like graduate and fit five years into four. So I think a lot of my academic experience at NYU, like got to take a lot of interesting classes, but had like jam-packed quarters, oh sorry, semesters at NYU. And overall, I think uh, it was really cool. So I think just I started working in a research lab my sophomore year, and I can talk more about that later. But I think that was what got me really interested in computer science. Like before that, I was like, this is cool, but I wasn't kind of very invested or sold yet. But I think because I was very interested in machine learning, because of the lab that I was in, I ended up taking a lot more machine learning classes starting my second year. And I think that was really cool because um, I also got to take a lot of like graduate level courses because NYU had uh, and has an excellent machine learning department as well. So I think overall, my favorite classes were the machine learning ones. It was kind of like a backward process where I got to see like the application in the lab and then got to sort of go back and learn more about the theory and and take classes on that. But I think that was a really cool, like motivating experience. Like it's not just you're taking a class, you really get to see how it's being used. So yeah, I think that was my overall academic experience. I also got to take a bunch of like physics, chemistry, things like that. I do have to say some of my favorite classes were the more liberal arts ones, which initially I was not looking forward to, but I do think like taking a writing class Really helped now in hindsight, as well as got to take an art history class at NYU Paris, which was really fun and cool.
0: I think, like, balance both of those, that brain and right brain muscle are critical for, as you mentioned, holistic development during that period of your life, right? And it sounds like, you know, just from what you're saying, you know, try and pack everything into different semesters, really make that academic kind of experience extremely rigorous. But, you know, I think cultivate that early work ethic and academic ambition definitely set you up for success later on as you progress in life and in your career. Besides academic, also took part in various other professional activities throughout your undergrad, such as you know being the president of the ACM chapter at NYU and the uh, Women in Computing Club. So, uh, can you share a little bit of details about your involvement with these student-run organizations?
1: Yeah, sure. So, I think just coming to a foreign country and then pursuing like CS, which was a major which I wasn't very familiar with, I think. I was just looking out for sort of mentors who are, or like people who are sort of a little bit further in need their academic career to get advice on just like what classes to take, which research mentors to work with, things like that. And so I think ACM was one of the first student organizations I joined. So ACM just exists as a chapter. They, you know, they, It's like a large organization, like they do professional memberships as well and things like that. And they also have student chapters. So I joined ACM very early on and it was really helpful to hear from seniors, juniors, people who are further ahead than me and get their advice. And then I just sort of liked it so much. And that was like my little community at NYU that I just stayed in the community or sorry, like ACM at NYU for a number of years. And then, you know, took on more leadership positions. And then it was really cool being like the vice president and president just to like organize student events. So I also ran like the ACM New York meetup group. And that was a cool way to just like invite professionals in New York to come speak to students. And that was a good way to just like meet people to then invite them to be speakers. And then just like for the benefit of students host events. So it was just like a fun thing to do, you know, like a very lightweight way of meeting people and to learn. And then Women in Computing, I think, was a similar organization. I quite liked the values of, you know, building a community of women and supporting each other. So like similar ways, just like building a community to help people either take classes, feel more confident in their skills, things like that. So actually one quarter or one semester, I was president of both organizations and taking a lot of classes and
0: doing research. So,
1: yeah, NYU time was quite hectic, but I think overall I just enjoyed it. It was a, it was a good way to just form relationships with other people in the department.
0: Given a lot of different activities and classes, it seems like you enjoy it, so it makes the whole process more fun. So you you take on a lot of different projects because you derive satisfaction from uh, working on them, right? I'm just curious on your experience with women in computing and kind of interacting with uh, either female undergrad who are interested in getting into tech, as well as female engineers in the field. What are some of the barriers that prevent women from considering a career in tech?
1: Yeah, I don't think I could speak to sort of all the reasons. I can only speak to sort of what I've experienced. So definitely not an exhaustive list and very heavily based on my own experiences. But I think just for me personally, too, I think it was slightly intimidating. My first couple of computer science classes, because I'd never done computer science up till that point. And being in a class where everybody already feels a little more like knowledgeable uh, can seem intimidating, or at least it did for me. And I and so I think just finding a community of people who are also beginners and being like, it's okay to be a beginner and you can catch up. I think at least that's one factor in, in like intro classes. So I think maybe just starting later, I think can have an impact. But I think I quickly realized by either joining these groups that there are other people in the same shoes, like 17 is not too late to start coding, which sounds ridiculous when you say, but I think if you're in a class where everybody's been coding since they were 12, it can feel slightly intimidating. But I definitely don't think like there are other reasons as to... White women tend to not join or stay or not stay or things like that. But this was definitely one of them for me personally. But I just sort of stuck it out and then I uh, became
0: more comfortable in my skills. That's definitely a great insight and great advice for someone who wants to get started and level up. Right? You mentioned a bit earlier that you get involved with machining research quite early throughout your undergrad, actually. In particular, at NYU, you were uh, working in Professor David Sontas' lab on application of machining to clinical medicine. And also, you completed a research internship for John Lamford at the Microsoft Research Office in Boston. What were some of the valuable lessons that you learned from this early research experience?
1: Yeah, so I started working in Professor David Sontag's lab in my sophomore summer, and that really came up. Out- As my freshman year, I was still new to computer science. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I mostly like took extra classes or did sort of more teaching assistantships, things like that. And then my sophomore year, I was still trying to figure out what I wanted. And, and, you know, because I joined all these groups, I was told that, you know, doing research is a good way to sort of become more familiar with the field, get more mentors, things like that. So I considered two different research labs, another one being like more of a systems lab before I joined David's lab. And Really grateful for him, also for having taken a chance on me, because at that point I just had good academics, but like I'd only been doing CS for two years, and then he took a chance on me and let me do like more like database work. So I think the summer that I worked in that lab, I wasn't actually doing machine learning research. I was just helping sort of transfer data from one format to other so that we can apply other existing tools or can get more into like what that project looked like, but it wasn't like machine learning research. And then after that, I got my own research project having sort of like done that and successfully delivered. And I think the learnings were just, I think it overall just increased my enthusiasm about the subject and, and just like Things I wanted to do. So I think it really got me into machine learning. It was super exciting that you can predict all these things from just looking at clinical records or things like that, and a lot of like fascinating questions and just being around really smart people. So I think just on a personal level, it gave me sort of a direction I wanted to focus on and stuff I wanted to work on. And then also made me realize like how little I knew. Like at that point, I was sort of getting more comfortable with computer science and I was like, wow, this is a whole different world that I need to learn more about. So I think just on a personal level, a lot of growth there. Other valuable lessons, well, I guess. I can speak to the thing that I did after that too. So I, I worked at Microsoft research and I was doing less research. It was more like I was working in between a research lab and a product team. And then my project was contributing to Whirlpool labbit which is this like open source tool that's use for NLP and I was helping support like sparse vectors. So I think I improved a lot of my coding skills at decode in like C, which I'd never done, and sort of get get more significance there. So I think just learning overall about the field a lot was great. My own personal enthusiasm was great. Yeah, I think, and then just getting mentors who can sort of support you and help you grow and learn, I think was an important thing. And I think just going forward further in my career, I looked for more like mentors and, and saw that as a good way to grow, to have people sort of take a chance on you and then like, you know, sort of prove yourself and things like that.
0: Those are excellent insight. Overall, you know, what you said, you become more enthusiastic about research, right? And seeking valuable mentorship and kind of leveling up your coding skill. Those three are pretty much, you know tackle the checklist of anyone who want to do this full-time. So I really appreciate you sharing this experience with the listeners.
1: Of course. I, I definitely always encourage, like, especially undergrads, if they're asking for advice and things, to, to seek out research mentors. I think it's just a good way to sort of develop some specialization, or it's just a good way to get mentors and set yourself a little bit apart. Definitely, like there are people who aren't interested in research, so uh, it's not a for everyone thing, but definitely something I recommend to undergrads, like especially if they're early, to seek out at least one research internship and then
0: see if that's for them. Brilliant. It seems like you have an absolutely wonderful undergrad experience at NYU. So after finishing your, well, five year, packing to four years degree, you were selected as one of the strongest incoming master's students and offer a full financial support by the computer science department at Stanford. You know, so my question is twofold. First, uh, what motivated you to pursue a master's degree? And second, how do you compare your academic experience at Stanford to that of NYU?
1: Sure, yeah. So for when I was sort of done with my undergrad or even towards the end, since I'd mostly done research, PhD just felt like a natural path in life. It's like everybody I know has a PhD, so therefore I should get a PhD too. And so I started sort of applying to PhDs or started the process. And then I thought about it a bit more deeply and I realized that I did not want or did not know if I wanted to be in research for sure. And that seemed to be the wrong attitude to apply to PhDs and then spend the next five years on. And so I just felt like I wanted to be a little more confident that PhD is something I wanted to pursue just because like I thought of what I wanted to do sort of at least more immediate but longer term and did not see myself in research uh, at that point and, and still wanted to explore but then the thing was, I didn't know what I wanted to do instead, just because I didn't want to be a software engineer. So I briefly considered like applied machine learning roles. So I was in that mindset where I was like, I'm not sure what I wanted to do. And then because I'd already started PhD applications, I, I just converted a lot of them to a master's just as like, okay, this is a thing I can do um, depending on what schools I get in and if I wanted to go. And so along the side, I was also looking for like applied machine learning roles at the same time, and then got into a few schools, a couple, and then Stanford being one of them. And I didn't know this, but like I applied and they were like, okay, you're guaranteed TA-ship for the two years that you're there, uh, which means that you TA and then they cover your tuition and then pay you a stipend and things like that. And so I think just like Stanford as a brand is pretty powerful. I was like, I'm not sure what I want to do. I think it seems like Bay Area already is a good place for tech. Maybe I'll just take two years to figure it out. And also it's like, you know, it's funded uh, kind of, it's like, I just have to TA or do research. And so I think given all of those things, it just, even my parents were like, it just seems like not, it just doesn't seem like an option to not take it. I guess I could, but it's like because I didn't have a clear sense of what I was doing instead, I um, went to Stanford. And even then, I was like, I was focused less on the classes because I'd already taken a lot of grad level courses at NYU and I'd already done research. So I think a lot of the things that people traditionally go to a master's for, I was like, not really trying to focus on that. I think what I really wanted to get from my master's was a path into what I wanted to do next. And so even when I joined, I when I spoke to Andrew Yang, uh, at one of his classes because I wanted to take it, I think one of the first questions he asked me was also like, why are you doing a master's? <laughs> because uh, I think my last years of undergrad were basically a master's. Yeah, but but it was a really cool experience. And I'm really glad, obviously, I went to Stanford because I ended up working in Andrew's lab. I ended up working in one of his startups and then I ended up, so I just mostly ended up working part-time through most of my master's. And I think my focus was different it was a lot less academic and a lot more like let me try to do machine learning I moved into an applied ml lab then I went to a startup so I think it was more exploratory trying to figure out what I wanted to do and I think that led to a really cool role that I wouldn't have gotten and like got a chance to work with Andrew which also wouldn't have happened otherwise and again grateful to him too so like in hindsight you can always say you know all these decisions make sense but now in hindsight I'm like I'm really glad that happened
0: this is super interesting as you mentioned that after finishing anyway you didn't know what to do next is that because of the shared breadth of your experience that expose you to so many different things? So you don't want to optimize for any single thing. You just want to keep exploring, right?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think in general, I have always gone for optionality in the past. And so, I mean, it's the, I don't know what to do, but I have a lot of options. So that's a good place to be where you're like, I could do this or this or this or this. I just don't know which one. And I think at least in the past, I've chosen ones that give me a lot more flexibility in terms of either I'm learning multiple things or can move into different roles in the future. And so I think it's just like back when too, when I like decided not to be a doctor, it's just like I was if I would have, there's no way you can drop out of med school, I would have just gone and become a doctor. And it was a very fixed path did not know for certain I wanted to do it. So studying abroad gave me more optionality and, and just a oh, chance to explore. Similarly, like going for PhD, I mean, a CS PhD is very flexible, but you were still committing like a certain number of years of your life. And I just wasn't sure. And so going to a master's again, gave me more flexibility in terms of figuring it out. Yeah, it seems to be a recurring thing. And then even after graduation, like AI funds, my role is super undefined. It's like help us start companies. But I think those are the chances, like if it's undefined, at least in the beginning of your career, I think you can shape it to be what you want more it's like less scoped but yeah I definitely think it seems to be a theme for optionality <laughs>
0: yeah yeah I mean what I kind of resonate from your answer is like you're super comfortable with dealing with uncertainty right do feel like in this culture there might be there's a lot of pressure for like college senior to sort of go through the path either working in big tech company or, or working in like finance which then that kind of pretty beautiful path for them right but, but yeah, but it seems like What you really optimize for is that concept of exploring different things. And and especially early in your career, there's, you know, limited downside and massive upside, which means a certain part and cultivate different skill set at the same time. And a lot of dividends can be paid later.
1: I think so. Yeah. I think at least early in my career, I think what I'm trying to do is, yeah, I think the downside is usually minimal when you're younger too. It's like, and you don't have a lot of things to worry about. And so I think it's just like, be aware of the downside. But if there's a chance that whatever you're working on is like, could be, like could make the rest of your career basically look like a footnote and then, then you should do it even if i mean obviously there's downsides to everything but i think it's like you kind of just want more shots on that or sorry what is the term <laughs> I, I don't recall the right term but it's basically try to take as many chances as possible that you have a lot of confidence in working out and then whether or not they do like you only need one to work out or two to work out essentially so more ambiguity, but like more upside to potentially, I think I'm more attracted to that. And just so why I'm now at a startup. So
0: talking about Stanford, you didn't mention that. Less focus on classes and more focus on even working and, and, and different type other activities, which we're gonna cover in the next few questions. Well, first of all, you spend a decent amount of time as the head teaching assistant for CS230, which is one of Stanford's most popular deepening courses. Now looking back from that experience, what have you learned from teaching that has impacted the work you do today?
1: Yeah, I think it was a really fun time TAing CS230. I did that for multiple quarters and then I was head TA and then managing the class, uh, at least the logistics for for a bit. And that was really fun for me, partly because I do enjoy teaching. So I think just like having like trying to communicate complex topics and then teaching that to others, I think is the best way to actually understand it yourself. So I think I'm just very interested in teaching. Overall, even now I'm working on a course with like deep learning AI, which is, you know, Andrew's like educational brand and arm. And, and so I think just teaching overall has been very exciting to me. And even right after graduation, the first company that I worked on at AI Funder helped set up was fourth brain, which is machine learning training programs. So overall, very interested just in making, I guess, like machine learning more accessible to people and more accessible and then also getting a better understanding myself. And then I think specifically CS230 was a very project-based course. So students would take the class and, you know, like do like lectures and things like that and assignments, but a large focus was a group project that they do over the course of the quarter. And so I'd mentor, I guess, like 15 of these every quarter. And so because of this overall, I got to see like 50 plus projects and got to mentor and, and get a good sense of like, how do you structure a machine learning project? What are some things you can try like setting a baseline if you run into bugs like helping them and then helping them think through like additions to try how to write like a basic like end of the semester paper or things like that so i think because of that class i got exposure to many different subfields in machine learning and got to mentor a bunch of projects which also was useful for me to conceptualize like okay this is a good way to structure a general machine learning project and so even though it was a class because it was project based and we would get a lot of students from other departments uh, it was a good way to see, like, okay, machine learning applied to these specific tasks and a good way to learn. So, I think just from my own learning experience, it was great, but also just like something I'm interested in doing in general.
0: Yeah, I see. Just curious, what do you think are some of the traits of a good mentor?
1: I think it's more like trying not to be prescriptive, but sort of having somebody arrive at something themselves. So, maybe you know, not like, hey, try these set of things, it's like, okay asking questions to have them then figure out why something is not working or what they could be doing. So I think it is hard to get that balance of like, here's what I think you should do. And here's the papers I think you should read. And here's what I think you should try versus like completely step back and let them figure it out. So I think that balance where they still feel like it's, you know or actually it should be original from the student. You're just there to guide, but then also supporting in the right way. And I think part of it is just like being responsive and being just there for students as a resource when they wanted to chat about things. And then also, I think for CS230 specifically, a lot of people were also not from computer science. So being patient and like realizing that these are not sometimes CS students and you do need to help and like dealing with a wide variety of skills in CS versus domain knowledge and things like that. But I would say overall, just, yeah, I think being responsive, being helpful, just being friendly and then a a balance between like helping students figure it out on their own versus like lightly nudging,
0: I would say. Absolutely. Yeah, those are, are very great insights. Continuing on the thread of working with Andrew Ng, you also spent time as a research assistant in his lab called Stanford Machine Learning Growth, and in particular, you have developed machine learning algorithms to solve high-impact problems in medicine. What are some of the current underexplored problems in medicine that you believe can massively benefit from ML on top of your mind?
1: Yeah, so... For when I worked at Andrew's lab, so I was interested in healthcare overall, like even in undergrad, I I did like applications of machine learning to clinical medicine. And then I came to Stanford and that's why I was attracted to Andrew's lab initially because he was machine learning for medical imaging. So I think I'm very interested in healthcare. I think I've gotten a little more skeptical about like applications of machine learning, at least in clinical settings, just because I think there's like important things to think about in terms of like reliability, robustness, and like people tend to care also like Sometimes about interpretability, whether or not they should, that's another thing. I think there's a lot of problems that are being tackled on the clinical side. I think there aren't that much more from an administrative side. Like, I think the clinical side and applying machine learning there in medicine is very cool to do, but I think there's more risks and it's harder to get through, I think, in terms of like actually deploying it. But I think there's a bunch of issues on the machine learning, like admin and operational side that maybe don't get as much attention. I think you'd notice like if you would have asked me the same question a couple of years earlier, I think I was way more research focused. And so I would focus more on the problem and the novelty of the problem or the coolness of the problem itself. But I think over the years now, I've, I don't know, I've decided to focus more on or started focusing more on practicality and like how soon can you get it in the hands of people? And I think in that there's a lot of cool machine learning work being done in labs. I think I'm excited to see a lot of it, like, I guess, come to practice and in, in, in hospitals and things like that. But I think that's a little more tricky to do in terms of FDA approval and things like that. But I think there's a lot of things that you can do in medicine that are not on the clinical side that could be quite impactful. There's also, I think Eric Topol, he's like very well-known in the machine learning for medicine field. He wrote this really great book called Deep Medicine. I think it outlines way better than I ever could. And also he has way more context there in terms of like machine learning applied to different parts of medicine and, and you know how, how that has been used so far. So I'd highly recommend that yeah, I think I've just been a little more skeptical about like medical applications because I'm not from the US, so I don't understand healthcare in the US. And so I don't understand the subtleties as much yet of getting stuff into production in medicine. And so I've sort of
0: strayed a bit further away on
1: machine learning for healthcare in practice. But in the lab setting, I quite enjoyed it and, and it was great.
0: That's a really thoughtful answer. And yeah, actually, I did medicine two years ago. World War II, uh, uh, ML application in, in medicine. Definitely put down the show notes for listeners who are interested in checking it out. I guess just kind of double-clicking on your experiment at the lab, I want to quickly go over the two paper that you had a chance to be a part of uh, while working at Android Lab. The first publication is called ChexNet, which is an algorithm that can detect pneumonia from chest X-rays at a level exceeding practicing radiologists. Couldn't mind like, sharing the background on the problem of radiology diagnostic and just some details about this algorithm. Sure,
1: yeah. So um, I started working on that paper as like part of the lab. So Pranov, uh, who's a friend, he spearheaded the project. He's led a bunch of projects in Stanford, the machine learning group. And so ChexNet, I worked on with other people in the lab at that point, and it was just like our onboarding sort of situation into the lab. And we worked on this together, and that's why you'll see so many co-authors because we're all just like working on the lab on the same problem at the same time. I think for, for me personally, I think the exciting things were, how do you compare to radiologists? So I wouldn't blatantly say, you know, like level exceeding practicing radiologists because that's like subtleties. But I think I learned a lot about problems in radiology and why they're not as further along as let's say traditional computer vision. That's simply because like lack of data sets. I guess we can get into it like the other people we have worked on, which was open sourcing a lot of these like medical data sets. But I think subtleties around also, how do you compare to humans? And how do you compare to doctors? And so I think the most fascinating part for me was seeing how Pradov and all of us thought about like comparing to radiologists. how would we set that up? How do you have humans vote? Like, do they do majority vote? And then how do they vote? Like, what format do they get the data and things like that? So I think just comparing to human baseline, it often comes up in startups too. When you're like working on an application, let's say like defect detection for manufacturing or any application you're working on a lot of times people want to like compare to humans and it is not as straightforward to figure out how do you compare to humans and how do you you know like have compare across humans because maybe humans are also unreliable so I think that overall theme of comparing to humans and things like that was was fascinating to me and then I think just radiology as a field I I was not very familiar with and, and we have collaborations or the lab had collaborations with People in Stanford Medicine. I think that was also interesting to see. And I guess leading into sort of the next paper we worked on, Mira, we released a large data set of images for like different body parts uh, for, for people to make progress on. I guess another thing is like another thing I got to think about was like purity of data, or I guess like a lot of times you can just take the data as is and then run machine learning on it. But in even the ChexNet case, it was helpful to see does the label actually mean anything or things like that. Yeah. So overall. Exciting
0: time. <laughs> For sure. You know, you mentioned that evaluation benchmark is important. Like designing that protocol, evaluation protocol, that can actually make sense in the context of comparing with radiologists. right? So certainly that's an important point. Really, just got to follow on that thread. And you mentioned a bit about Mora. So this is essentially a large data set of musculoskeletal radiographs containing over 40,000 images from close to 15,000 studies. And based on what I read on the website, essentially the team at Stanford made Mora available to the broader community and also hosted a bone X-ray deep learning competition to see if you know some of the community development models can perform as well as radiologists on the task. What are some of the implications of Mora for ML applications in radiology?
1: Yeah, I think releasing a data set was or we thought was very important, just because I think in machine learning overall, when you have large data sets, progress has been made faster on that task, just because I mean, data set collection and labeling is a huge thing in itself or a huge endeavor and effort. So I think in the past when people have done that, like ImageNet or Pranav also worked on Squad, which is a Stanford question answering data set. I think when you have data sets available and like a benchmark or a way to evaluate, people can quickly make progress on the models to then get good performance on the task. I think, especially in radiology, you can't just have anyone label the image. You know, you need sort of subject matter experts, or in this case, radiologists. radiologists are also very busy and very expensive. So I think it's just inaccessible to a lot of people who are also interested in machine learning to develop the data set on their own. Uh, I mean, even just getting the images like f- out from a hospital is just like getting the data and then getting the labels in a lot of ways could be a non-starter. So I think just getting that data set out is a good way to promote, like, I guess, faster progress on those tasks similar to, and so the idea is that if you release these data sets and I believe the Stanford lab released even larger data sets in the future or have a goal too, it just helps people develop models that work on that data type or that specific type of task faster
0: like throughout this experience working on this publication and being a part of the lab it seems like your awareness about go back to those practical problems ranging from evolution benchmark to uh, the poor data in your other words right it's certainly more important than choice of architecture or hyperparameter settings which well now we know it but i suppose back in since 2018 it, it less explore right it's, it's glad that you got a chance to have a first-hand experience cultivating that belief
1: I think so. And I think it, a part of it is also the fact that we now have a lot of models that perform really well on a task, right? Like before, if you didn't have models that performed well on a task, it made sense to focus more on modeling and try to develop better models for a specific task. But I guess now that we have that and model training and, and getting something that works as push button, where you can like for NLP tasks, get something from hiding Face, a lot of it is now figuring out, is my data set good? How do I, you know, get it labeled or get it to the right format? So I think the shift has also been because of all the improvements that have been made in the past number of years. But yeah, definitely, I think the first lab that I worked on was a lot more theoretical and a lot more modeling focused. And then I think the second lab that I worked in was way more applied, like Andrew's lab. And then after that, I I think I've even more applied, which is like, let's just go work at startups and see how machine learning is done in the industry, not just in like a lab context.
0: Yeah, brilliant. And that's transferring pretty well to my next question, which is working in industries. You kind of mentioned a little bit about like, working part-time while at Stanford, and in particular, you spent time as a machine engineer at a startup called Learning AI. And essentially, you have your ML for visual inspection tasks in manufacturing. Well, first of all, how did this opportunity come about? And second of all, from this experiment, what could you say to be some of the key component of successful industrial AI?
1: Yeah, so how did this opportunity come about? So I was working in engineering lab at that time, and then he would frequent the lab or, or be around and had an office at Stanford. And, you know, I wanted to take his class. And so I think one of the days I just sort of went up to him and I said, oh, you know, I work in here. Well, first I'd spoken to him right when I wanted to take his class, he recommended that I work in his lab. And then when I was working in his lab, I mentioned strong interest in working at his startup. And so then he asked me more about my background, things like that. And then I interviewed for them and then I was hired into the team as an intern. And so I think just, yeah, grateful Andrew for just like keeping on giving me a chance. And then uh, I think it's just been exciting, like the progression of roles to working with him. That's what that looks like. And I think my motivation was, I think the applied ML side of it was already very interesting to me. And then I just wanted to see sort of how do you, I, I didn't have a lot of exposure to industry at that point. Like even at Microsoft, like I worked in a space between like a research team and a product team. So not a lot of experience, like actually productionizing things or actually working at a startup and caring more about like startup revenue or like products and things like that. So really wanted to work at a startup. And then I'd only worked in medicine at that point. Like all of the applications of machine learning I'd worked in were in healthcare. And I am still very interested in healthcare. I still think it's very impactful. I think it's great. But I also wanted to see other applications of machine learning. And I think Andrew is really amazing just as a mentor and as a person to look up to. And so really wanted a chance to work with him as well. And so I went to work at Landing. I worked there for six months. So over a summer, I was like full-time and then part-time across another quarter. What they did at that time, and I'm sure it's like evolved a lot since I can't speak to like the current product and what that looks like. But at that time, they were trying to do defect detection for different manufacturing parts. So companies would come to you and then say, here are images of defective and non-defective parts. Can you automatically detect if something is defective for like quality control and assurance and things like that? I think that was really interesting too. I don't know if I can speak to industrial AI broadly, but I think the, I had a lot of learnings from this specific one, which was, you know, deep learning works, but in a lot of settings, you don't have a lot of data, especially for defect detection. If it's any good of a manufacturing company, they're not perfect like producing that many defective samples. Otherwise they wouldn't be in business. So how do you, how do you work with limited amount of data and try to do something there? It also got me very interested in product because I was like a lot of, some of these shortcomings of a model, you can maybe bake into product decisions, right? Like make something more human in the loop and have a human review stuff instead of automatically pushing a prediction. So I think learning more about like how to build machine learning product was very insightful for me personally. And I think just Made me realize how many like researchy questions there are just in industry too. like for defect detection, new types of defects would pop up and it's like you've never seen them before. So how do you deal with that? Or again, like data shortage, as I mentioned, or like lighting conditions changing, and like robustness. So thinking about like open ended <laughs> research questions, but then also thinking about can we build a product that somehow makes this work in terms of either like a human in the loop approach and things like that. So I think, yeah, my, my personal learnings were more in terms of like building machine learning applications and, and how, I guess, even in a class setting, even though we were doing, you know, real world projects, it was still like sort of toy tasks. And I think this was the first time sort of seeing it in practice
0: for me. For sure. That's a super comprehensive answer. Like come up with me a task to work with limited data, caring about building a real world product and finally like tackling open and research question for the domain. Right. I do feel like all of them have kind of integrated with each other and mm-hmm. you know you have that experience Why Stanford is, is perfect during your journey you to figure out what you want to do. You know, beside research, you actually also participated in a couple of external entrepreneurial mm-hmm. initiatives at Stanford, such as the Threshold Venture Fellowship and the Grey Lab X Fellowship. How did these programs affect your Stanford experience?
1: Yeah, so I joined the DFJ program, we'll now call Threshold, which is led by a professor at Stanford, Tina Selig, who's really great, and Heidi Rosen, who is a venture partner at Threshold Ventures. And they select a group of 12 students every year that they sort of mentor. And it's like to develop entrepreneurial traits, essentially, is how they call it, not necessarily like helping you just like start a company immediately. They're a lot more like, you know, technical, in-the-weeds classes about entrepreneurship at Stanford. I think it was a really really great way to just meet other people other like-minded people and develop like another community at stanford and so some of my really good friends right now are, are from the program and then i ta'd the quarter after and got to meet another group of 12 really amazing people through this program and so it was just really great to sort of i guess like broaden the group of people i knew because it's also people from other majors whereas like otherwise i would mostly be in CS. And then I'm also, you know, working part-time most of the time. So there isn't a lot of like meeting people who are not in computer science part. So this was just like great way to meet other entrepreneurial people at Stanford. And a lot of them have gone on to start companies and, you know, just like a great network of people. Also the Greylock X, I did it over a summer. That was a good way to meet people who are like across schools. So Greylock runs this fellowship over the summer. And there was, you know, I think also somewhere around like 10 or 12 people who are from different schools like uh, MIT, Harvard, Stanford, other schools. So again, another really good way to meet people. <laughs> I think the barrier is just like so small. And I think I especially realized this after being part of these fellowships, because, you know, you're just like sort of a couple of degrees of connection away from most people. And so I think just broadening the amount of people that you know, and, and you know, it's just a good way to like bounce ideas off of people, learn more about other fields, things like that. So I think that was really great. And for Greylock X, we got to meet some of like Greylock's founders one week every week for about 10 weeks. And so that was really cool to hear about like people's startup journeys and and how they've progressed. Like we met the CEO of Figma, and and I I don't think Figma was like really that big then. And now it's like really cool to think that like, you know, we met all these, we got to learn firsthand from all of these amazing founders then. And for DFJ, we got to learn from Tina and Heidi, who were both amazing and learn from their skills and, and have a mentor. Like when I was trying to decide between VC versus startup, which I guess we'll get to later, Heidi was one of the first people I asked uh, just because she is amazing and she's always available to talk to, you know, DFJ students, but threshold students. So just meeting more people, I feel, <laughs> is just in general great. And this is a good way to do that.
0: Oh, the broader team is you are super intentional about how do you want to level up and expand your professional circle, right? I love your probably about you know, try to meet people out from other majors, not just CS as well. And Kind of stepping out of that bubble and learn from people in other fields. And it seems like, you know, this fellowship, a really great experience to hear different stories and cultivate that entrepreneurial drive, which are hugely prized in the Bay Area. I
1: think so. I do think a lot of things obviously come off more intentional in hindsight. I, I wouldn't say that. I think the fellowships and everything was, or all the decisions I've made have been interesting just in the moment as well. But I think it's a lot easier to make them seem more intentional in hindsight. I think overall I've been optimizing for like, am I learning and growing as a person? So like skill set building and then just like meeting cool people and then either helping them or getting to know them. I think just, I think those like general themes and I think things just work out from kind of there.
0: Well, at both NYU and SNAP, you do always try to pack a lot of experience. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This is like, you know, general question, but do you have any advice or specific tips for people who want to increase the productivity?
1: Increase their productivity. Yes. So I think me just as a person, I feel like I tend to do stuff pretty last minute. And it's like, if, even if I start things early, It's like, it will take up all the time up until the deadline it has it. So the biggest productivity hack for me as a person is I just overload things or if I have a lot of things to do, then I am forced to be efficient a lot more often and in it, you know, more frequently. And I just think that, you know, if I had less things, I would do the same amount of work, but just because I have more things, then I am just more efficient with my time. And so I'm not sure if this is like a good productivity lesson, but what works for me is just like having enough things to do that I'm more efficient. And then I think others think it's just like, really caring about and enjoying stuff that you like working on. I think if it was a lot of stuff that I just felt like I had to do or didn't want to do, then I wouldn't be as productive. But I think just because I was actually interested and wanted to work on a lot of things. So I think just being intentional about like things you pick and then picking enough things, at least for me, that there is a regular cadence of work has worked out, but I wouldn't say that I am just, yeah, any, any productivity hacks overall. I have realized just like, how important it is to just maintain like a baseline level of, you know, like good sleep, working out, you know, uh, being just baseline happy. And then, you know, tacking on work on top. Cause I think in grad school and undergrad, I would just like not sleep as much. uh, And then that, and I think that's unhealthy. So I think just maintaining a basic level of health and then being excited about things you work on and then just having a lot of things to do.
0: And also like having a lot of different things to do, is really doesn't make you boring. Right. You don't want to be a boring person. And then, <laughs> um, yeah, and also another thing is like, if you're stuck on a certain task, a project, you can work on another thing and maybe leverage a little bit of, of creativity from that other project and then apply that to your main task. And I think like the sort of idea in the section of what write devices are. I love to Point talk about it. just pack a lot of things together. It was saying like, if there's an important project, just give it to a busy person. <laughs> they're, they're exactly. <laughs> they can figure out how to do it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So I think just yeah, as you mentioned, sort of yeah, like packing things, getting different experiences. I think that has helped with me so far as well. Like being able to do a different variety of like things that take up different skills. So for at NYU, for example, it was like research, but then also hosting, you know, events for people and and more of that. I think that was like a good balance to use a lot of my skills. And so actually after graduation, I was a bit not stressed, but I was like, I'm doing so many things in undergrad and grad school and it's easy to feel like you're doing a lot you know and doing all these different things but then when you go get your first job you're just doing one thing so then how do you deal with that but my first job was AI fund which was a wide variety of things so did not have that problem (laughs) but definitely something that I have liked doing in the past at least
0: yeah brilliant yeah I was talking about AI fund transition Uh, After Stanford, you spent a year and a half in a hybrid ML engineer slash product manager slash venture capital associate role at AI Fund. And for the context, you know, this is a fund uh, founded by Andrew Wing and backed by well-known leading business firms and investors back in 2017. In particular, you have companies intensively with entrepreneurs during their startup, most critical and risky phase from zero to one. Questions two twofold. First of all, what about the role that attracted you? And second of all, what were some of the big learning curves for you to level up your product and venture knowledge?
1: Yeah, so that role was also, it wasn't a role that really existed. So when I was working at Landing, we didn't really have a product team then. So I got to think a lot about like product implications and how that can mitigate a lot of sort of like open research questions you have. And it's not as a startup that you're going to try to solve open research questions. So you just have to bake in product decisions that sort of mitigate that or, you know, make the product experience better and and the product that you can ship. So I think I got very interested in product. And then AI fund also existed at that time. And all the sort of Andrew's different ventures were co-located. And I got to speak with some of their members and they were considering an AI PM program, you know, sort of the like half PMs that work across portfolio companies. It was just a Google doc, but it got me so excited that I then spoke to Andrew and just expressed interest. I was like, you do need someone. Well, so first of all, what they told me was this is not a role that exists or that that we're hiring for. This is just an idea. But then I think I mentioned that since I have machine learning skills and I'm interested in product skills, they would need someone of my skill set maybe to help out with companies. And so very grateful again for Andrew for taking this chance on me and like having me hired into this like super undefined role. The program never ended up like happening and, or not something that existed and so i just was like hired as a person into ai fund to help start companies was basically the role and i think for me that was super exciting uh because it's you know the upside can be like if you find a company that you're interested in first of all you're learning a lot so even if nothing works out that's fine because you're learning a lot from each company and the upside is like if you do find a company that is works out or that you're interested in the upside is like you're one of the very first people or you're helping start this company so i think. Upside is huge. There's minimal or basically no downside. And then another one is like just having Andrew as a mentor. I think he has had such a large variety of experiences from just like being, just doing core research back in the day, all the way to like starting teams and then running companies and then now taking on a more like businessy role as well. So I think just like the breadth of experiences he's had has just always been an inspiration to me. And so I think just working for someone like Andrew and helping, you know, the AI fund, which was a small team, just yeah, attracted me. And so, so that with the role. So I think the whole thing was a huge learning curve because the first company I worked on was called Fourth Brain and it sort of existed in a form, but basically I was brought in to do curriculum for them because I'd done CS230 and had a teaching background. But then later it morphed into like, can you figure out what this company is going to be just because the initial hypothesis we have, we might not want to do. So it was a very open-ended role. And I think really the biggest learning was like, trying to figure out how to thrive in this role. So like working with another general partner, Sean at the fund and Andrew to set like goals for like, it's like, at least tell me like what would success look like? And then I can get there. But it was just so undefined that in the beginning, I also was like, I don't even know how to excel in this role. So I think just figuring out how to work in like a super ambiguous undefined situation. And then I had to do everything, figuring out go to market, figuring out marketing, figuring out like building a financial model to figure out how this is going to scale and whether we should be doing this huge learning curve. And even after that, another startup, I worked on like learning about product and things like that. And even now this is like the largest company I've worked at, like, you know, as a startup, like where I'm working on product stuff. So I think there's just huge learning curves everywhere. I think it's just, I mean, part of it is like, I guess seeking knowledge of talking to mentors who can guide you in the right direction. And partly it's also just relying on your own intuition. I, I don't know. I feel like if something, I think a lot of product management is just like intuitive it, I think this as someone who's not an official product manager and has a lot of learning to do, but I think there's some things that might not be optimal, but get the job done in the short term. And I think that works for a very, very small company where it's like, maybe that's not the right process, but sort of just moving fast. And as long as it's like, well, okay, sorry, like a slight detour. I think Andrew always talks about like one-way versus two-way doors. If it's a decision that's a two-way door, that means like you're not closing a door, you can always come back. Then speed really matters if you're that early stage. So I think a lot of it was just like, running with it and then seeing how it plays out as long as you are aware of like what kind of decision you're making. And then for the really big decisions, which are one way doors, maybe be more deliberate, thoughtful, and then rely on mentors. So I think I, even now I'm learning, but I think I've just learned to sort of trust my intuition a bit more and also just like moving fast and bringing in other people and learning from them.
0: Yeah. Execution of a strategy. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 So for sure. Just kind of, you know, going off that thread, kind of reflecting on your experience with helping build and invest in different early stage ML companies with AI fund, right? What advice have you been giving them during your time there in terms of finding product market fit and developing go-to-market strategy? And then vice versa, what advice should they ignore?
1: Yeah. So going back to sort of your previous question of how I learned, I think a lot of it was mentor driven, right? Like I think we had great general partners at the fund as well as, you know, Andrew. And even now, like I rely heavily on mentors to sort of guide me down the right path or ask them questions whenever, you know, I'm actually confused. So even when I was at AI fund, I feel like I was doing more shadowing. You know, I don't think that I felt very qualified to give people go to market strategy advice or product market fit advice. So it was a bit more of like osmosis and seeing what we're telling our founders. And I think that's part of the decision why I decided to go back to a startup, because I felt like I had a lot of learning to do like on the ground myself before I could be an investor and sort of help others. There is a lot of like investor learning in terms of like, you get to see so many examples that you can sort of pattern match and develop your own viewpoint. But I just felt like it was more important for me to learn it myself and experience it. But in terms of like, I think, the stage that we were working at was zero to one. Right. And so it's like, nothing exists. You're trying to work on something. And at that point, I think the number one things we saw was companies with like grandiose visions of like, here's where we're going to be like as a company five to 10 years from now, here's the grand vision, but then not a very good idea of like what the minimal product looks like, like an MVP. And so I think the biggest advice we kept giving was like, what is your MVP? How much money do you need to get to that? And like, is that something people want in itself? Because a lot of times people would be like, this is a thing I'm building, but this is not the final thing. I will add like these six more things and then this is the final thing. And so I think just in terms of like general strategy, all we were trying to do a lot, at least because we were at such an early stage was figuring out what your MVP looks like and then figuring out minimal ways to test it and figuring out like that part. So I think that was really interesting to see overall. And then also at AI fund, it was just interesting to see different verticals that are popping up and things like that. But in general, I feel like, I guess the advice is just, it's really important to have good mentors early on. <laughs> I, I think in general, both for companies as well, where it's like people who've done that before or just good investors and they can help you even more. But I think it's, it's just like remembering what an MVP looks like versus grand vision of the company and, and, and getting towards that faster. And then just the importance of teams as well. Like if you hire a good team, smart people, I think
0: that's half the battle there. Yes, just Just out of curiosity, I mean, like there are people probably all familiar with the Lean Startup methodology and that concept of MVP, right? But I'm just curious, what is the difference between an ML MVP versus just traditional like software MVP from your experience talking with, with this different company?
1: That makes sense. I mean, the MVP is still like the minimal thing you can do. I think the learnings from a machine learning person perspective is how much of very early stage, unless you're doing like a novel researchy thing, like, you know, like, tracking for cameras or things like that which is like an active or like not as well developed research topic but if you're doing a startup and like nlp or something like that the mvp just uses something off the shelf so you really need someone that's more of a full stack engineer and, and has an ml understanding rather than a very qualified ml person in the beginning and so i think the learnings there were mostly like how little <laughs> how little work you're doing on the ml part of things in an ml startup at least for the ones that we were doing, which is like either text-based or, or mostly text-based or like, you know, prediction of something or anomaly detection. But if it's like a full like hard tech startup or like cutting edge machine learning, that's different. But a lot of the learning is like, you know, you just need someone to like build a very good product and like product and the experience is more important than you, you can even use something rule-based or like, I think it, it really pushed me towards like, Even for machine learning projects, like start with a baseline, start with heuristics, start with something and see how far that gets you before you try to do fancy machine learning. And I think a lot of times it's also like have someone who has the context, not in a machine learning aspect, like actual domain knowledge to see how that plays in. And that's actually more important. Yeah,
0: For sure. That was uh, something good insights and good knowledge from a lot of world stories talking with these companies. I just want to quickly say that I think you mentioned earlier about you know, while working in this role, you realize that you actually still have a lot of ground to learn. And so that's why we to talk about snorkel right now, but that's why you make the decision to go back and, and work as a practitioner. That really shows your humility in terms of how you want to approach building fulfilling career and approach like mastery and, and purpose the career choice you want to be. So I just want to brought that up because I think that's important to hear for a lot of early stage practitioners who consider a different career path. Understand their weakness and their strength and go for that are crucial. I
1: think so. I think part of it is also, I think we're very early still in machine learning and how it's being used. I think it's going to grow a lot more. And so I want to be sort of more involved in building companies and learning more, and then maybe later move to an investment role. But I think it's part of like my enthusiasm for just like how far I think machine learning can go. And I don't think we're there yet. And so I think I just thought that I would learn more and use up more of my skills in a more operational capacity.
0: Definitely. Basically going from a wide angle and, and go into a practitioner mode, zooming in. Mm-hmm. So since January of this year, you had joined Snorkel AI, which is the startup behind the popular Snorkel open source project, a couple of quickly generating training data with, with supervision. Could you mind unpacking your decision to unbot the Snorkel journey?
1: Yeah. So after I decided to leave AI fund, I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do just because I really enjoyed the more higher level of like, hey, here's what a product should look like. Here's like, you know, go to market for this. And then there was machine learning involved as well, but it didn't seem natural. Or like, I wasn't sure if I wanted to zoom in into a very like technical machine learning engineering role or like I'd worked in product teams, but like one or two people teams, right? So I had a lot of learning to do still or, or take on like a PM role. And so I think there was a lot of confusion there. What I did know or what, how I structured my thinking was, like, okay, I do want to go work at a startup. And so I guess like there's issues around like what stage? And so I think I still wanted to go early, maybe further along than the companies I'd seen. So at AI, Fine, find I got to see zero to one, like nothing exists. How do you get the first couple of customers? And then I think what I really wanted to see was like once you have the first couple of customers, how do you generalize and then build up like a sales pipeline and start scaling a lot faster? So I think that stage was very interesting to me. And I think I was just interested in the ML infra space overall. It's something that I looked at for more of an investing perspective. But I think the space is very interesting. There's a lot of interesting companies coming up. So I was interested in that space. Also, it was a good chance to see how machine learning is being used across different verticals. So interest in the space, interest in the stage. And then Snorkel specifically, a person I worked with in Andrew's lab that works at Snorkel. So I would chatted with him before I'd even considered joining Snorkel. And he was very enthusiastic about it. And then one of my ex-AI fund coworkers works at Greylock and They're our investor and he was very excited about Snorkel. I met the team and they were all just like very brilliant people. And then just also very fun and friendly. And then once I got to sort of see the Snorkel product or or learn more about e-supervision, I just felt like that was like a fundamentally better way to do things. And I was surprised that that wasn't how we do things for at least certain applications. And so I think it just made sense or the technology itself or the value proposition was very solid for me. And so, yeah, I think just the value proposition being solid. Like amazing team workers were brilliant. And then also they were flexible with my role. They were like, if you want to do product, you can do that. If you want to do machine learning, you can do that. And so I think the role flexibility, all of those led to just joining Snorkel.
0: The space, the the stage, sort of the the team, all those criteria kind of aligned in the decision to join the company. Thinking about your previous experience in research and now in startups, What do you see as the differences and similarities between being an ML researcher and an ML engineer?
1: Yeah, so for ML research, I think the key difference is you you have a fixed data set and then you spend a lot of time iterating on your models. Similar in classes that you take and even like CS230, which is an applied class, you fix a data set and then you iterate on the models. Whereas in real world, what you often see is your data set, you can't treat it as fixed. A lot of times the way to get model improvements is actually to fix labels in your data set or iterate on your data. So I think Andrew's also been calling it like data-centric machine learning. And this is the idea behind Snorkel as well. Uh, A lot of the times, like, you know, it's not just model training, which actually now is push button. You actually want to spend a lot of time iterating on your data. I think the skill sets are also different. Like I think machine learning engineer, you also need like decent software engineering skills. because a lot of it is just like building stuff back or prototyping or things like that. Whereas like ML research, Like people are now open sourcing their code. So maybe you have a certain code practice or best practices you would like to follow. But I think the focus area is different. I also think just like machine learning, way more customer facing generally. So you need to have a little bit of a product sense too in terms of like, why are we building something? And maybe you can even get by with the minimal like heuristic base or baseline thing. And and it's less about like fancier models. So I think the key difference is also just like where you spend most of your time on and what you optimize for,
0: yeah. Thanks for sharing that, yeah. Hopefully, you know, with we tools at Snorkel, we can click a button and that's right on the data. And yeah. Yeah, everything done. So I'm just curious to see how, you know, what I think the vision of Snorkel is. Where does it play that mission of the data-centric AI application procedure?
1: Yeah, so I think, uh, as I mentioned, the data-centric approach and, and Snorkel really just embodies that. Because, so Snorkel as a project started as faster data labeling. So you have a large amount of data. Generally in traditional machine learning, you go through each example one at a time and you're just like, tens of thousands of examples, it's very time consuming. Data labeling is also not a one-stop shop. Like let's say you mislabeled something, you change your classes, there's a lot of variability. And even as we saw in medical settings, sometimes only experts can label it and their time is very precious. So Snorkel is programmatic labeling. So it's like, instead of explicitly labeling each data point, can you say functions to label your data? And then the research project was, how do we combine these various functions into a single label? And then the snorkel flow platform itself, when you use programmatic labeling, you don't do like a perfect data labeling that covers your entire data set in one shot. You start with a certain number of functions, you train your model, and then you can very quickly iterate from there. So it is actually just a whole different way of iterating on machine learning applications, which is much faster and more targeted error analysis and much more, I think, intelligent for at least certain applications. And so that's the snorkel flow platform. And then we support different use cases. And now we're like sort of like, you know, text extraction instead of just classification or working with different data modalities and things like that. So I think it's really exciting to sort of be at the cutting edge of machine learning, sort of like weak supervision already is pretty new, but then also working on a platform that has like super clear, like business value proposition, and also just amazing team members. But I think the data centric approach is, you know, you keep iterating on your data instead of just iterating on your model.
0: Thanks for sharing that. And it seems like this role combine a lot of these different interests, different threads that you try to touch on from your education and internship and then industry experience, as well from research to startups to product to engineering. I Definitely hope to see how you want to evolve in upcoming years with Snorkel and just your career in general. So, thank you. Um, I'm
1: very excited about Snorkel too. <laughs> I think it's a machine learning engineering role is already very product oriented, and I get to sort of exercise both muscles. So I've been finding it very exciting.
0: Yeah. Awesome. So, Arthur, at this point of conversation, I want to move on to the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid-fire questions and give quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the ML community whose work you admire.
1: I'm just going to say my three mentors just because I'm, in, like, <laughs> indebted to them and, and very grateful. So, I think Andrew Ng, John Langford, and David Sontag. There are a bunch of people whose work I admire. Those three come
0: first to mind. Number two, name one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate a scientific mindset?
1: I think the Richard Feynman books are very interesting. I also think one book that I read recently from Stripe Press, I forget the, the Art of Doing Science and Engineering maybe, has this really good chapter called You and Your Research. I would highly recommend that. That one you can actually find online, but I think that's a great book.
0: And lastly, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early stage ML engineers on Twitter. What could you tweet about?
1: I think probably some combination of also learn to be a good software engineer. You don't need to have all the answers like nobody knows, you know, ML systems or ops like or unless they get their first machine learning engineering job, so just take a chance, apply for it. Yeah, and then just you got this, I guess.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. I I really enjoyed our conversation today learning about your whole journey from growing up in India, moving to New York, doing research, participating in different activities, getting into computer science. Going to Stanford, working in various capacity, entering, exploring different threats, ranging from teaching to entrepreneurship to ML application in medicine. I think like a lot of things that you know we get up from this conversation is just the desire to seek information, to learn, to deal with learning curve, finding good mentors, being a great team, dealing with uncertainty. Right now, I think the role that you are with us a now called perfect cultivation of all this threat that we touch on. So yeah, I, did, I really enjoyed it and uh, I'll be sure to include everything that we discussed today in the show notes so listeners can have a chance to take a look and you know, hopefully uh, double click or reach out on any display if they're interested to hear more about Snarkle or, or you in general.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was, this was really great, really fun. And yes, anyone listening to this, feel free to reach out. I'll give James my LinkedIn and Twitter. And so yeah, but this was great. Thank you so
0: much. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskaley.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.